Um, let's uh, let's go ahead and begin in prayer, and we'll jump into this um, study for tonight. Father, tonight, as the book title says, uh, we do want to experience you in a daily basis. We want to we want to really have those those that crisis of faith where we move into the dimension of seeing you do something. Uh, very significant that only you could do in our life. And God, that is our heart. That is our where we want to be, Father, as people. And we've, uh, we've tasted a lot. We've learned a lot over the, the course of these uh, 10 or 11 months that we've been studying. And we pray, Father, that all of it will be uh, to, our, to our really ongoing benefit in terms of the kingdom. We ask you, God, to guide us tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, take your uh, your workbook, turn to the back f- inside flap, and if you haven't discovered this yet, it's a great discovery. In fact, I think it's a great diagram, and I think it, it's one of those ones that you might want to get a photocopy of, shrink it down, or just put it in the back of your Bible, because it's a good reminder, because it does take you through these... Um, you know, these seven dimensions that he, he's going through. And that first one, you know, God's work, and, and then it takes you through relationship, invitation, God speaking. And now we're tonight, we're at crisis of belief and adjust. And the idea that we adjust our life then to what God shows us. And then we begin to walk in that, um, and, and that experience, obey and, and, and walk in that experience with God. So I just bring that to your attention in case you have not discovered it back there. It's there. There's also some Bible memory verses, um, not my favorite translation, but they're there. Um, if you ever want to, I really suggest everybody kind of gets involved in Bible memory. I, uh, I kind of got saved, as many of you probably did, in a day when scripture memory was kind of a big thing. There was a group called the Navigators. Some of you may remember Navigators, and, and the whole idea was just putting God's word in your heart. My kids were little. Um, we had something called Awanas. A, a uh, but before they were old enough for Awanas, there was something else. Um, hey, guys, come on in. Um, yeah, yeah, come on in. Everybody turn around and look, <laughs> right? No embarrassment there, right? Hey, we're so glad you moved, by the way, right? Awesome. Um, anyway, um, but they had a, a, it was called Bible Memory Association, Bible Memory Association was made for age groups, but they had one, it was called the ABCs. And it's amazing how things stick with you, especially when they have a rhythm to them. I think I've talked to you about the rhythm of, of memory. If you've ever watched Orthodox Jews, when they're, when they're doing scripture, they're rocking because they've literally found that that rocking actually is a memory aid. That's why sometimes if you've ever thought about you can think better on your feet, it's because you're actually, there's a movement going on. For some reason, that works. Um, so anyway, my, my kids were little. I mean, they were like three and four years old, and they did this thing called Bible Memory Association. And it was um, scriptures that were all tied to letters of the alphabet. And so you, you, they were very simple, but you couldn't re- it was like you couldn't ever forget them. It was like, you know, A, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. B, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. You know, C, you know, confess your faults one to another. You know, D, draw near unto God and he will draw near unto you. You know, E, even a child is known by his doing, whether it be good or be, whether it be bad. Fathers, do not provoke your children. You see how I've, I mean, right? And I haven't, you know, it's not like I sit around and review this. But the key is it's tied to memory. It's tied to, to rhythm. It's tied to something. So I just want to encourage you in the, in the area of Scripture memory um, to, to pick a topic and find some things. The other thing I'm going to tell you is um, most new translations of the Bible are the most difficult to memorize. 
Okay. Now you think you go out and you get one because you think it's easier to read. It's harder to memorize because what makes, for example, I, I, I'm not advocating you get a King James Bible. I use a new King James, but what I'm telling you is this. The, re, the King James Bible is the easiest Bible to memorize on the planet because it has a poetic rhythm to it. And that, that, that feeds right into that whole idea. Uh, it was interesting because we were in uh, uh, House of Prayer this morning and uh, someone was reading from a translation, and I know it was a newer translation. I don't know what, which one it was. I forgot to ask. But I'm, I'm listening to this person read it, and I'm going, they're having struggle reading this, and they're, smart. they're a smart person. And I'm looking at mine the whole time going, mine is 10 times easier to read than that, and it's a new King James. Because sometimes when you try to, try to put it in today's language, today's language isn't always smooth. Have you ever noticed that? It's a little choppy. It doesn't have the... A little rhythm to it so I'm just I'm telling you do it memorize scripture in any translation you want to memorize it but find some method that works for you um, and and just kind of start putting God's heart you know word in your heart when I was um, uh, first saved uh, the lady that uh, was instrumental in really kind of discipling me was from Wales and her mother told this last night at men's uh, Bible study we had it uh, we had it retro we did it over at a guy's house and it was really fun for, for the old old uh, old way we used to do it but um, his mother was completely blind, but she had memorized the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation by somebody reading it to her. I mean, put that, I mean, put that in your mind, right? I, can't, I, I can read it and can't memorize the whole Bible. I, worked for, uh, I had a guy come that I hired one time. His name was Ron, and uh, this was in New Jersey, and I was looking for a small group pastor, and I couldn't find one, and I, I sent out this thing for application. You know, I got like 120 people who weren't qualified, right, for this job. So I just so frustrated, and I said to this, uh, this old kind of uh, cantankerous plumber in my church named Eddie Zoon, I said, Eddie, I just can't find a small group. He said, oh, I got the guy for you. You got the guy? And he said, oh, I got the guy. And I said, well, who is he? Oh, he said his name is Ron, and I said, well, like, is he in ministry? What does he do? No, he's a tree trimmer. I said, what do you mean he's a tree trimmer? Oh, yeah, well, he owns a, he trims trees. He, he, that's what he does. And I said, well, why do you think he's qualified? Oh, he knows a lot of the Bible. So I set this guy down, and I say, Ron, you know, I did it out of a courtesy. I didn't think, and he was the sweetest guy in the world, this guy, Ron. And I, I didn't, for one minute, think he was the right guy. And so I said, well, Ron, now, Ron, um, Eddie's thinks should be great for a small group pastor. What do you think? He said, well, you know, I, I think I could, I think I would like that. Cause I, and I said, why? He said, well, I really like people. I said, well, that's good. I mean, that's better than not liking them, right? You know? I said, okay. And, um, well, well, tell me, like, uh, like, if you had this job, what would you do? What would be the first thing you'd do? He said, well, I'd bring my camera to church. And I'd go up and introduce myself to someone. And then I'd take their picture. And then I'd go home and build a little database. And, and I'd try to learn all about them. That's a pretty good idea, you know, right? Get to know people. I said, now, I, I understand you know the, uh, some of the, you have the Bible. You know pretty, the Bible pretty well. Well, yeah, I've, I've memorized a little bit of it. And I said, uh, well, like, what have you memorized? He said, well, I've memorized the entire New Testament, and I've memorized about half the Old Testament. And I'm sitting there thinking, okay. And I said, well, now, so I, could you, like, if I just gave you a verse, could you just, and it was in a book you knew, could you just tell it to me? And he goes, yeah. And I go, okay, uh, Ezekiel, and, and I didn't even know what this verse said, right? Ezekiel 22.1. How about Philippians 6, you know, I mean, Philippians 4.8, you know? Instant recall, every one of them. And I realized this guy 
somehow God had blessed him with some kind of amazing memory. So when he would take a picture of someone and he would see him once, he always knew him. So we had two small groups when he started. In a year, we had 106 small groups. Parish? Oh, I don't know there, Father Jack. <laughs> we had, about, I don't know, we had about maybe 2,500 people, something like that. But, but think about that. Think about that, you know? And, but what was the key was, you know, I said, how did you learn all this? He said, well, you know, I'm trimming a tree. You don't have much to do. So I'd put little cards in my pocket, and I'd reach in, and I'd look at them, and I'd, and I'd do it. And I thought, isn't that, isn't that great? And I, so I just want to encourage you with a couple of stories. I mean, I'm not a Ron, you're not a Ron, but, but you know, everybody here can memorize a scripture. Um, and, and when you start laying that up in your heart, you always have it, you know, it may not be as, as readily available, you know, because you're you know, trying to dig out from the memory, but just it's in there. I remember I memorized the book of first Peter one time and I did a really bad job of it. I memorized it, but I could only memorize it if I was starting verse one, chapter one, and I had to keep running. So if you wanted chapter three, you had to wait a while, but I didn't memorize it well enough. So I, I really kind of lost that, that whole thing. Um, but still those verses, they'll come back to me, you know, and I'll say it, I'll get started. I go, yeah, I know that verse. I know that verse. So I just want to encourage you in the area of Bible memory. Let's talk about a crisis of belief. So if you're, if you've got your workbook, by the way, for those of you who came a little bit after the survey, I've got a, I've got a survey here. I'd like you to fill out. We've kind of, kind of come to the conclusion that maybe, um, the, um, the book Experiencing God, though, is a great book for a small group. It wasn't really f- well suited for this environment. Hi, guys. You can see the whole family. So your folks today had, had lunch with them. Kind of lunch. I was fasting. So, yeah. Um, so anyway, um, let's talk about a crisis of belief. The, the one thing that we think of a lot of times when we think about faith is we think in terms of, you know, if I just get enough faith, then I'll see some things happen. But before, before you can exercise faith, there's a crisis that happens in your life. There's something that demands that that faith um, it moves into the dimension so that they connect. One of my favorite quotes from, um, uh, really of all time, is from Joan of Arc. And, and Joan of Arc said this, uh, um, act and God will act. Act, and God will act. Okay, that's faith. I have to go in the direction of God. Okay, I have to move and say, I'm going with God. I'm going to trust God on this. I'm going to do this. Then God steps in. It's not the opposite, is it? This God goes, I'm going to step in, start working, and then you're going to believe me. No, because I walk by what? Faith or by sight? I walk by faith. Well, faith is unseen. You know, the Bible says we don't look to the things that are seen, for they're temporal. We look for the things that are unseen, for they are what? Eternal. So what's real is what I can't see. What's temporary is what I can see. Kind of goes the opposite, doesn't it? I don't believe anything I can't see, I can't hold, can't taste, can't touch, whatever. And yet think about all the things that you believe in that you can't see. Like how many of you believe in love? Anybody? A few of you don't. Okay. A few of you have been burned. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, so, but you need to say, I believe in love, but I've never, I've never seen love. I've experienced love. I can look at people and say they look like they love each other, 
but I can't see love. How about, how many of you believe you have an eternal soul? But I've never seen it, right? I've never seen my eternal soul, but I believe I have one. You know, um, I've never seen God, and yet I believe there is one, right? And I believe it's the one that's in this book. So, so think about this idea of a crisis of belief. So if, you're, if you've got your workbook, we're just going to kind of take you through a little bit. This starts on page uh, 133 um, in your workbook. And um, it, it's, really, it's really interesting because he uses this example of trying to trust God for some resources in this building of this church. And, and how they're going to set their budget and what they're going to do. And, and, and here was the problem. They thought they heard from God and what they heard from God was so much bigger than they typically would receive in that church in terms of money. Now what do we do? Do we play it safe and say, you know, I think next year we'll take in about 3% more than we did the year before, and that's kind of how we'll set our budget? Or in this case, when God doubles or triples your budget, and you go, well, that's what we're believing God from because we heard God say that. Now, let me just ask you, think about this a minute. If you, if you step out, whether whatever it is, when you step out in that dimension, what's your greatest fear of trusting God for something super big? Just shout it out. What do you think? What's, what's, your, what's your biggest fear? Huh? You'll look dumb. Yeah, what else? You have failure. What else? Yeah, oh, gee, we don't want to embarrass God. You know, what would he do? My gosh, he wouldn't come out of heaven for a while, right? What else? What else do we do? Why do we not want to do that? Lack of faith right? Sometimes it's just a pure lack of faith. Um, we, we are so guarded in, a, in the way that we live out our life in this spiritual realm that we, we step back and we go, you know, if I play it safe, I'll still look like I'm loving God, and I do. I'm just not like I don't love God, and I'll, and I'll look like I'm pretty good in this faith dimension, and if God just surprises me with an aha moment and works a miracle, then I'm just going to praise him. Um. And he asked a question somewhere in this. He said, uh, uh, it may be on the next page, but um, yeah, let me get to it. But he says, in, in these crises of belief, you come to understand what you really believe about God. What do I really think of God? Is God the kind of God that does that kind of stuff, or is he the kind of God that wants me to play it super safe? And our, and our whole theology about what God is like is kind of built around this idea. So when you think about it, it asks the question here, can you give some examples in your personal life or in your church life where you had a crisis of belief? So I was kind of thinking back. I think the first crisis of belief for me was starting a church. It was just a crisis of belief because I had an easy out. I had an offer to go pastor a very large church, Okay. And, and, and when I told the guy I was going to start a church, he told me, point out, I was crazy. And I agreed with him. I did. I said, you're right. You can come over and pastor this church. The bad thing is it was in Ohio, you know, and I've lived in Ohio, and that's like, you know, the short route to purgatory. But, but you know, this is church in Ohio. It's got 10,000 people in it. You know, you can, you know, it's got all staff. It's fully funded. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, I can do that or I can put my, you know, my stool and my stand in the back of my car and drive down to El Rancho and start a church. Now, I mean, seriously, what idiot takes the ladder unless he's in faith? 
And, and you know, we, and, and I'm telling you, let me tell you in the first year, I probably quit in my head a thousand times. I said, God, what am I doing? This is stupid. Why, why am I doing this? I'm not 20, right? And I, and I would go through this whole process of what am I doing, and I would question it, and, and then God would go back, did you believe, this was always a question, did you believe I led you to start this church? And I hated it when he did that. You know? Because I thought, yes, you did, God, but then why is it so challenging? Because it's faith. Because you don't have it. You know, when you start out and you've got, I mean, I don't know how long it was, John, but we borrowed, we borrowed equipment so long that we, we tried to avoid the people so we didn't have to give it back. I mean, seriously, we just, we had cables and we had soundboard and microphones and I don't know what all we had, but we borrowed stuff and how long can we keep it? And I think Jeff was telling, well, we probably ought to give it back. How long has it been? It's been two months and dang, just don't call the guy, you know, wait till he calls you, you know, don't offer anything back because we didn't have money for it. We didn't have money to buy it. And then when we would buy stuff, everything we would buy, we would say, we want to make sure we can use it, continue to use it. We don't want it to go to waste. You know, like those subwoofers over there, I mean, two of those subwoofers are the original ones we had at El Rancho. So in the sound system, most of the lights up there are lights that we bought along the journey. So if we buy it, we're buying it so we can always use it. You know, we, want, we don't want anything we don't, can't use. We did keep this chintzy thing that John bought somewhere. I don't know, John Ketchum bought this chintzy stand. I still hate them, but it was a great deal. We got like nine of them for 10 bucks or something. But, but, but it was a crisis of belief to start it. And then we were really comfortable in El Rancho. If you were there in El Rancho, it was really comfortable. And, and I literally, believe it or not, soccer season was coming, and they said, you know, there's not enough parking. You're going to have to move out. Somehow, somehow I convinced the principal to agree for us to, to take out their tennis courts, to put a tent on there, and we had an architect draw up a plan to take all their, their, their basketball, outdoor basketball courts and turn it into a parking lot. I had convinced them to do that. And then in the last minute, it just, it was clearly what we weren't going to be able to get it done in time. It wasn't going to work, you know, to make it happen. And now I'm in a crisis belief. What are we going to do? There are no warehouses up and down this corridor. And I'm looking at this theater thinking, this is the worst idea I've ever seen. Because childcare is going to be, a, you know, a mile down the road. And we lost a lot of families. We really, really did. You know, I, mean, I don't know why they can go out, you know, for dinner and get a babysitter and they can't go five minutes up the road, you know, for church. I mean, it's like, really? Really? But it was a crisis of belief. And then the crisis of belief to get this building. And I was just kind of going through that in my own mind. So as I'm saying these things, I want you to, to kind of in your own mind think about what are the crisis of beliefs that you've had in your life where you just hit those, those, those walls and you said, I don't know how this is going to happen. And think about those all as wonderful, wonderful gifts from God. Because without them, you never grow in faith. Without them, you never move into that supernatural dimension that you know you love once you're in it right? But painful to get into it. What if, what if God's plan for your life was to put you through dozens of these, uh, these crises of faith uh, so that you could be really ready to, to serve him and love him the way he called you to? What if, what if that was the case? Isn't that awful? 
Go to page uh, 137, Crisis of Belief. And look at these look at these key phrases here. An encounter with God requires what? Faith, okay? Encounters with God are God-sized. Now, here's where it gets tougher. It doesn't take much faith when you sit down at dinner table and thank God for the food in front of you. God, I thank you for this food that you've provided. Doesn't take much faith. It's there. What if you had nothing and you had to trust God for that food? Now what happens to your faith? Do you ever think that God engineers situations to create that in you? Because he's more concerned about developing your character and your faith and getting you ready for eternity than he is about you getting what you want that particular day. It's kind of an interesting thought, isn't it? That maybe God has a long view picture of you and I and versus a short view like we t- typically do. And God, I think, arranges situations like that in our life for that very, very purpose, which is, which is really interesting. Let me tell you another God-sized um, crisis of belief for, for us here at this church, and I want you to kind of relate to this. I didn't grow up in a tradition where we saw people healed. We'd pray for people healed. You know, I remember hearing Bill Johnson say one time, he said, you know, before I really understood this whole stuff about healing, he said, if you, want, if you were guaranteed to, to stay sick or die, you had me pray for you. Because we, most of the prayers we prayed were prayers of comfort. God, I just pray that they'll be comfortable, right? God, I know if, you're not, if it's not your will to heal them, God, I just pray that they won't suffer. Well, nobody wants that guy praying for you, Right? That's not the guy you want to call. And I remember the crisis of belief when, when and I remember so well because it was right before Easter and this girl came and this mother of four and she says, I have a brain tumor. Would you pray for my healing? And I'm first of all just broken up because this young mother of four has got a brain tumor and she's going to have surgery after Easter. And I was in a crisis belief, and I, I remember so well praying for her, and I remember it was like this, this struggle. Am I going to pray for her to, to, to be comfortable, to pray for doctors to be really skilled, or am I going to pray for her healing? And I don't mean just want her to be healed. I mean I want to pray for her to be healed. And I remember that crisis, and I was sitting there. I almost felt guilty because I was, I was believing her to be healed. Does that make sense? Because I was saying, God, I just called her name out and I said, I just believe that God is going to heal you. And the minute I said it, I just thought, don't say that, Phil. Because what if she doesn't? And everything inside of the human Phil was just kind of crawling up inside wanting to die. And I had such compassion for her and such love for her and her family. And, you know, I just didn't want to see that, but it was a crisis belief. And then God healed her. And what, what is, when, when you see, when you go through experience like that, what does that do for you? Strengthens your faith, right? It makes the next prayer what? Harder or easier? A whole lot easier. God, if you can do it once, maybe you got two. You know, then God brought the second one. Then, it, then you go, God, if you can do it two, then you can go three. Then you get really bold. Then you go, God's going to heal everybody. And then, then that little voice in behind you go, God's going, well, that's not exactly how it works, Phil, but you need to pray that way. You need to believe that way, okay? 
And so I just kind of now, I just operate on this assumption that God wants to heal everybody. And if he doesn't, that's his problem because he told me to pray for everybody's healing. See that difference? I'm going to pray for your healing, and I'm going to believe God's going to heal you. And if he doesn't come through, we have to take that up with him. Versus my disclaimer, it must not be God's will. You see? So I'm always going to, if I'm going to err in any direction, I want to err in the direction of faith, not doubt. I think that's what a crisis of belief is about. Jack, you were going to say something? Say it just a little bit louder, Jack. I'm sorry. I just wanted to ask you something because it comes with healing. A, a lot of people believe in laying, laying hands on folks. Mm-hmm. Um, and the people that I've asked about it say that's required. Um, he says, well, Jesus would touch, Jesus kissed me, uh, all that. But, but he also, with the centurion, mm-hmm. the centurion said, look, I know how things work. I just say something in my, my unbelief. Right. Right. Yeah, faith. Yeah, and I and I think I think here's what I believe about faith and about the miracle working of God. I think that God purposely keeps us from a formula. Purposely, because otherwise we'd all get the formula, we'd all be able to work it out, and it wouldn't have anything to do with faith. It'd have to do with the formula. I mean, look at how many different ways He He healed people. I mean, you know, I, you've heard me say this before. I just always look, go back to it because it's like the goofiest healing I've ever heard of. You know, the, the spit and the dirt in the blind guy's eye. I mean, seriously? Really? Really, Jesus? Who wants to duplicate that formula in the local church? Guy comes up, what's wrong? I'm, bl- I'm blind, can't see. You know, John, would you run out and get a little, uh, little dirt? He comes in, spit in my hand. How's that working for you? It's not working. I'm seeing men, and they're walking around like trees. Okay, we need more spit, more mud. Bam. Nobody's going to replicate that formula. Or as you said, you know, the centurion, you know, hey, in abstentia, you know, he's healing in abstentia, and not even the centurion's faith. It's, a, you know, it's a guy, you know, the other guy. I mean, it's just like you, you, you see this all over the map. Why? Because God doesn't want us to get, get him into a box, Israel in the Old Testament, they had the, remember the, the Ark of the Covenant? Raiders of the Lost Ark, remember that movie? I got to go watch that again. That's such a good movie. All right. Especially when, they, remember when the Nazi's there and, you know, and the his plane's coming, he's going, yeah, the propeller's going to get him. I love that part. Anyway, not very Christian, but I'm sorry. Um, but, you know, the Raiders of the Lost Ark. And so here's this Ark, and everybody thinks if they have the Ark, they have the power of God controlled. Nazis all get lined up, you know, the head SS guy, you know, or uh, Gestapo guy, he's got, you know, he puts on the robe and the hat, he's going to, you know, he, I mean, he's going to take care of this, right? He's the first guy to melt. But you know where they got that idea? They got it from the Jews in the Old Testament. Because they thought if they had the Ark of the Covenant, they were always going to win in battle. And here's the truth. The Ark was a symbol of the presence of God. But it was not a prison house for the essence of God. Got that? It was a symbol for the presence of God, but it was not a prison house for the essence of God. This place here that we call a worship center can be a symbol for the presence of God, but we cannot contain God here, and we cannot control God here. This heart called the temple 
is a is a symbol. It's a place of residence, but it does not it does not confine God. It does not control God in any way, right? And and really, what we want to do is we want to release God. Let's go to the next one, number three. Uh, what do you do in response to God's revelation? That is an invitation to tell you what to believe. So God shows you something. Now, how are you going to respond to that? What are you going to do if God tells you to do something crazy goofy? Oh, he wouldn't do that. Really? What could be goofier than telling a guy to build a boat, an ark? How about go back into Egypt where they want to kill you because a bush caught on fire? How about Gideon, who's afraid of his own shadow, hiding in the cave, and he, and he reduces the army down to 300 and says, now you're ready for battle. Oh, then let's just go ahead and get David out there with a couple of stones, and he's going to fight the biggest guy on the block. You see what happens? A crisis belief will always push you into a God-sized situation, and, it, and that revelation, what do you do when God reveals something like that to you and says, just go? Just go do that. Give it a shot. I'm going to be with you. And so true faith requires action. I can't, I never have faith when I say I have faith. I only have faith when I move in the, in the direction or the dimension that God has revealed to me. That's faith. That's when faith kicks in. It's kind of like, you, you know, I don't know what I'm, Jesus said, don't worry about what you're going to say. Remember that? You're going to be, you know, persecuted, all that. Don't worry about what you're going to say. When you get in that situation, open your mouth and it's going to take care of itself. Well, that doesn't seem like a good plan. Let's prepare. No, don't do that. Just go out there and go for it and see what happens. Act and God will act. I love the story of Joan of Arc. We studied Joan of Arc uh, a couple of years ago on a, on a study we did. And, and I, since that time, I learned how much has been written about her. Even Mark Twain wrote a book about Joan of Arc. If you got iBook, anybody got iBooks on your phone or an iPad, right? You can download Mark Twain's uh, book on Joan of Arc free. Zero cost, okay? So it's worth the price. But Joan of Arc, here's this like 15-year-old girl who leads the end, all the armies of France. You know why? She operated by this principle, act and God will act. Now, you might think she was crazy. You might think she was goofy. You might think her, her cause was not noble. It doesn't matter. She saw God come through for some reason. When they came to arrest her, they said, if you come from God, I do not fear you. If you come from Satan, I fear you even less. When you got that kind of courage and that kind of faith, what is somebody going to do to you? When you really understand the depth of what it means when it says if God is for us, then who or what can be against us? What, then what could? Can doubt be against you? Not if God is for you. If you really believe that. See, it all starts with this faith in God. If I've got that strong enough, I don't have to worry about anything else. I thought it was really neat. Um, Ted, I don't know if I got back to you on your text, but I want to just read your text because I thought it was so good. Uh, oh, by the way, did you all know Jared and Lucinda had their baby? Okay. In case you didn't know that, so they had little, uh, little Zach this morning. Little, little Zach. I was really hoping that she would hold out till the 30th because that's my birthday, but she, she took the coward's way out and got, you know, had the baby early. But he's back in action because he's already texted me and given me an assignment here to something to do. So, um, But I thought uh, Ted texted me this this morning and um, after last night's uh, talk and we were talking about some stuff. So can I just read this? Is that okay, Ted? Okay, cool. Um, 
last night you said something about my excitement. You know, Ted's kind of always excited. I mean, he's just like jumping around like crazy. I, I love it. He said, I was thinking about why I get excited. This morning I checked out Blue Letter Bible and I searched adoption. And he's an adoption attorney if you don't know, okay? Same verses I kept searching, but this is what the Lord showed me from Romans 8.15. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Add to this 1 John 4.18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out all fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. So could it be that fear is the number one prevention um, to us realizing our adoption and knowing perfect love? This is really important because if we ask, what are you afraid of in all kinds of circumstances, it's amazing to find that there is something measurable about fear. And that uh, as, this, uh, as that is true in our spiritual, vertical adoption, it is also true in our physical, horizontal adoption. How many generational lines have not regenerated through adoption because of fear? Wow. This has been a thought of mine for years, but it crystallized this morning in these two verses. Yeah, I'm excited. Thanks for all you do. Yeah, I didn't read that part. Well, thank, thank you, brother. But I, I, but I thought it was so important that you said that thing about if I've got fear, I can't move. I can't move, can I? And, I? and I get stymied because I think, well, what if God doesn't? Or why would he? Or it's too big. It's not manageable. And God says, what do you think this is all about anyway? It's all about you just trusting me and moving in that dimension. Um, yeah. Can you hear what he's saying? If we'd be honest enough to ask that, what are you really afraid of? Okay. Yeah, it would be. Yeah. What are you afraid of, Ted? What are you afraid of? I've been asking myself that we want to do more adoption, and I don't know why we. It's just, I think it's just because it's so big. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, are you, do you. Maybe a little bit. 
Yeah. 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 Don't you think, and let me just ask you all this, don't you think fear has different classifications? I mean, for example, let's just take Tammy breaking down a barrier, going to sharing with a neighbor versus you hiring three new attorneys and feeling, you know, like responsibility. There, there's, there are different kinds of faith and there are different things that affect us in different ways, you know. Um, I, I'm going to share this because I'm glad you brought this up because it's, it's kind of a cool thing for me. Um, you know, we've started this, this house of prayer on Tuesday morning from nine to 1030 and we're, we haven't announced it. We've just, but you're all welcome to come. Okay. The reason we haven't announced is because we want to kind of work out the bugs and know what we're doing. And when you come in here, you got a good experience and we've, we've kind of got it figured out. Right. Um, of course, God's always got it figured out and it's, it's really fantastic. And, but, but it's really good to go through this and kind of one, when we got ready to start this, one of the things that was in my heart was, wow, what if this doesn't work? What if nobody shows up? You know, kind of the natural kind of stuff. And then that, you know, and what kind of leadership do I need to exercise? And what God, one of the things that God showed me to do was step back and try to empower as many people that are there, especially younger than me, and not try to talk as little as I can and empower them to do that work of driving that thing. And it was so fun today, you know, to see uh, Natalie and Scout and then our, you know, the team up on the, on the stage and, and different people, you know, that are just, you know, they're, they're in their 20s, you know, and they're, they're taking that step and they're, and my fear, I had to put my fear to the side of it, of I had to run it, you know, because I, I can do it, right? I'm capable, right? But with that also comes increased fear because then it's all on me. But, but when I put it on them, you know, now what I do is I'm, I'm putting faith in a future, right? Because they're going to be in a lot better shape 30 years from today than I will be. So they are the natural, natural, that's a natural baton handing off. But I think sometimes we want to resist that because, well, what if it doesn't work and, you know, you're the pastor and, you know, you've messed it up you know, all that kind of stuff. So I think there, I think for me, if I got down to what's the root fear in Phil, it's always been the fear of failure because I'm performance driven. Always been the fear of failure. And I don't know whether that comes out of some goofy stuff when you're a kid and you fail and you know, then you're trying to overcome all that junk that people write books about, right? Well, I don't know what it is. But I think that, that when you face your fears, they get smaller, and when you run from them, they get bigger. So when, if we kind of apply that sometimes into our faith dimension here, what is it you've, you'd really fear believing God for? What would be the thing you would fear most believing God for in your life? And maybe that's the thing you need to step up to the plate on and go, let me take a swing at that one. May, just maybe. I don't know, but I think there's something to that. I, I it was a great, uh, great text that you sent me, and I, and I, it really, it really ministered to me. On page uh, 139, middle of kind of the top, middle of the page there, in bold letters, it says something only God can do. What is there in your life that you know that the only way that it could happen is God could do it? You say, well, uh, you know, like, well, I need a new car. Well. You probably could find somebody who would loan you the money, who would get you the new car. How about the new car that's free? 
Oh, that's different. Now we just changed the, the game, right? Now only God could do that. But you, first you got to go back and go, does God want me to have a new car? Andrew Murray, who was, um, uh, he's one of my favorite writers on prayer. Uh, originally from England, uh, settled in uh, Cape Town, South Africa, uh, was blessed when we were over there. Tammy and I got to go over to where he, his church, where he preached, uh, and the place he was buried, and we went to the museum. And, but he said this, the first order is not, to, is not to pray, but is to know what to pray. What are you going to trust God for? What will it be? So is it big enough? Is it big enough? So here's what I want you to do. If you've got a pen or your phone with you, I want you to write something down, okay? Everybody ready? When you get your phone, get a pen ready, okay? Okay, now here's what I want you to do. I want you to write down what's something so big that only God could do that you'd like to trust him for. It's so big that you'd like to trust him for, but you know only God could do it. And as you're writing that, I want you to think, ask this question. Is that something you'd be willing, and I'm not going to ask you to do it, okay? So don't get nervous on me. Is that something you'd be willing to get up in front of this crowd or on Sunday morning and say, hey, this is what I'm trusting God for? Okay? Now, the only reason I say that is because there's something about faith when it enters into the public arena that it becomes real. It becomes real. It's safe. It's in my head. Because if it doesn't happen, what's the big problem, right? It just didn't happen. Nobody knows. I was trusting God, you know, for whatever. But nobody knows. There, there were times, and, and, I, and I, really, I really love these times, and I hate these times. There were times when we were at the theater, and I would make, some, I would make a statement about what I believed God was going to do. And I hated myself when I got done because I didn't know if he was going to do it. And the only reason I could, the only way I could trust God was I had to go public with it. So then people held me accountable. You think God's really going to do that? I'm thinking to myself, look at him going, I sure hope so. I don't. I'm, inside I'm going, outside I'm going, yes. And inside I'm going, God, I really went public on this one, didn't I? Now what are you going to do? What are you going to do? That was my faith. It was my willingness to risk failure for something that I believe God was leading me into. To look like a fool if God didn't come through. That's faith. It's walking on the borderline of disaster that if God doesn't come through, then you look like a fool. That, I mean, does that capture it? You know, it's like standing on that stage with one foot hanging over it and you're trying to, to balance it and you're going to do that for the next six months because that's how long it might take for that, for that answer to come. And you're just like, God, where are you? I don't have enough stability on this one. Are you coming through or are you not coming through on this one, God? Something so big. Okay, how many of you wrote something down or thought of something if you didn't have something to write with? Many people, okay? How many of you didn't write anything? For whatever reason. It's okay. I mean, you just maybe it didn't come to your mind or you just thought, I don't want to get in this world because it's going to surely kill me, right? Okay. How many of you wrote something down that you'd be willing to share with somebody sitting next to you? Just raise your hand. You don't have to, okay? 
All right. How many of you wrote something you had to be willing to share with this group? Okay. Crowd's getting thinner. Okay. Right. How many of you would be willing to put it on Facebook for all, all your friends to see it? See, the exposure gets bigger, doesn't it? Exposure gets bigger, right? How many of you would like to, to, to be able to tell your friends, say, I want you to ask me about this uh, at least once a week, and, and so I know I want you to hold me accountable to my faith? See, I don't know about you, but sometimes when I'm believing in God for something and I don't see any action, I kind of want to dodge people. Um, I know some of you have heard these stories, but I want to tell them again because they're so illustrative of this. So when we put an offer on this building... We had, we had sent $100,000 in um, into escrow for this building. And this building was going to cost us right about $3 million. Okay? And then we still had to renovate it because it was a post office, and it was a really ugly post office inside. This was where they sorted all the mail, right here. Okay? It's crazy when you, th- you look back at it. And so... The reason we felt so confident sending $100,000 in was because one Sunday when we were at the theater, a guy walked up to us and said, um, hey, I know you're short on money, but I'm going to go ahead and loan you $2.5 million, okay? And it's just going to be simple interest, you know, and we can figure out, you know, how the terms and all that kind of stuff, but I just want us to go ahead and get this building. Now, when you get that kind of a comment, what's the first thought that goes to your mind when somebody tells you that? Now, mine is, he's broke. He doesn't have it. That was my first. I'm sorry. Mine was not. You know, my second one was, wow, God's working. So my first one is, the guy doesn't have it, but he really would like to have it. And the second one is, you know, um, uh, wow, God's just brought this guy into our life. So I got over the first one because he, he assured me that he had the money to do it. And I thought, oh, great. And so, so now we've got the 100000 We send the 100000 off, and we're going to be closing on this thing in about 30 days. We're good. We told the realtor, you know, it's a cash deal. Coming home for men's Bible study, we had over at Ron's house coming home, and I get a, I see my phone light up, and I look at it, and I pull over because it's from this guy with the $2.5 million, and he said, hey, I want to give you plenty of time to find, an, uh, find a loan, but I'm not going to be able to give you the $2.5 million. He's given me four weeks. We've got 13 months worth of finance. We've been in business 13 months. We've got 13 months worth of financials. You know what that means to a bank? See in two years. Because we'd already called 100 banks. I got it and I started laughing. I thought it was the funniest thing I'd ever seen in my life. I'm laughing, laughing, laughing. I said, this is so funny, God. I can't believe you did this. I wasn't even mad at the guy. I text, I emailed him back right then. I said, okay, thanks, man. I appreciate it. I called up George. I called up Sean. called up my wife. I'm, la- I'm telling them about I'm laughing. They're going... They're shocked. They don't know what to do. We're going to lose $100,000. God's not coming through. And I said, just relax. This is too stupid to not be of God. That's literally what I said to him. This is too stupid not to be of God. This is so crazy. Only God would engineer this kind of idiocy. This is ark kind of stuff. This is burning bush stuff. That's what I thought, and I really did laugh. I knew God had a better plan, and God did. Had we taken that $2.5 million, it would have been the worst spiritual decision of our church. You know why? Because it wouldn't have pushed us into a 21-day fast. We wouldn't have learned about faith. We wouldn't have trusted God. We put three things out. We need a loan. We need uh, money for renovation, 
and we need permits on the first day we get this close on this because we don't have any time to waste because we're paying double rent over there at the theater and over here. It's a crisis of belief, isn't it? If you'd asked me in advance how I would have reacted, I would have told you I'd have been mad. I drove over the guy's house and I'd beat him up in Jesus' name and then asked for forgiveness. Okay. Now, why do I tell you this? Because God came through with that, but he had to bring us as a church, not me, us, to a crisis of belief. Are we going to see God work? And I'm going to tell the rest of the story because some of you haven't heard it, and I can tell this last quick. If you've heard it twice or 40 times, I'm sorry. So I, through a mutual friend, through a friend of mine, he connected us with a mutual friend in Amarillo, Texas, who couldn't help us. Who couldn't help us. He said, but there may be somebody else that can help you. Let me connect you with that guy. He connects us with that guy, and this guy is like, imagine Amarillo, Texas. What do they have to do all day long? I mean, count crickets? What do you do in Amarillo, Texas? He's like laid back Farmer John. I go, hey, uh, we need to get this loan and we got to close on it. You know, we've only got like 10 days or something like that, eight days. And, and uh, I said, okay, well, well, I guess I better get you an application then. <laughs> yeah, that would be great. Can you email it to me? He said, well, I'm kind of busy this morning. Can I get it to you tomorrow? Well, is there any way to get it? Well, no, I don't think so. You know, we're going to have a long lunch. Got a staff lunch today. You know, and I'm inside. I'm just like, God, I know you're working here, but this doesn't feel good right now, God. I don't like it. I was in crisis. I was in a crisis of belief. So he gets me the application the next day, and I fill it out as fast as I can, and I send it to him. I email it back to him, and and then I call him. I, I, you know, when you send something, I call him like an hour later. Hey, did you get it? Well, I don't know. I haven't looked at my computer today. Amarillo, Texas. Let me go check it. He goes in. No, no, don't have it. What do you mean don't have it? No, don't have it. Maybe why don't you send it again? He said, of course, you know, we're two hours later. So, you know, it's already three. So I'll get it tomorrow. God knew exactly the right guy to put in my life. Why could I not have got a loan out of New York? Some guy goes, I'm on it. Oh, no, I get Amarillo, Texas. God will always bring Amarillo, Texas guys into your life if that's what, if you're, hurry up and let's get it done. So we got eight days. We sent it in. Eight day, we got eight days to close. And I said, you know, we have to close on Monday. Yeah, I know. It shouldn't be a problem. He said, uh, why don't you call me about Wednesday? Call him on Wednesday. Well, I got some pretty good news. We got the loan? Well, not yet. Junior loan committee thought it looked pretty good. Got to take a senior loan committee. So are you going to do that this afternoon? He said, no, we're going to do that in the morning. And do that in the morning. Have you any of you heard this part of the story? This is the funniest part of the story. I've never told this funny part of the story. I said, really? I mean, well, how confident are you? He said, I'm about 80%. About 80% sure about this. Now, remember, here's what's looming over my head. We're in the theater, and everybody's tired of the theater. I've taken $100,000 of people's money, and I've said we're going to buy this building. I'm going to lose $100,000. We're still going to be in the theater, and I'm going to be Pastor Dangerfield when it's all over. That's all I can think of, right? So 
I think we asked, I can't remember what we asked for, but I think we asked for 2.5 and he says, well, we approved your loan. He said, uh, we gave you a little extra. Didn't think you had enough in there to do your renovations. So, uh, threw another 200,000 in there for you and, uh, should be enough, but let me, let us know. And I said, well, when we're going to have it, we're going to have it on Friday. Supposed to, we closed on Monday. We closed on the building on Friday instead of Monday. We got the money for the renovation that we needed, the 200000 extra, we, what we needed. And so we got the three things we were fasting for was the loan, the renovation money, and the permits. And we were able to get the loan and the renovation money on Friday before the 21st day. The 21st day was Monday of the fast. And on Monday, we pulled all the permits. What would have happened had God not put us in a crisis of belief? Because it just set the stage for what God was going to do next. So God, whatever, whatever you go through in a crisis of belief, God is just preparing you for the next opportunity. That's all. That's all. It's just, this is how he works. Frustrating as he is, this is how he works. A little bit later in here, and I don't care remember where it is because everything kind of runs together when I'm talking like this. But he talks about um, about the way that God when when the way that God works it that if He doesn't do that, if He doesn't push you to that place, you never really get a chance to testify to people outside the faith what God can do. The works of God testify of the God that we serve. If we don't see the works of God, nobody really. You know, it's just going to church. We have to be a church about the works of God. We have to be. We have to, we have to see people saved. We have to see people healed. We have to see things happen that, don't, that just cannot be explained because people don't see the God if they don't see the works of God. Amen? Okay, let's take a quick break, okay? Everybody just kind of stretch, hit the restroom, whatever, and uh, we'll come back and finish up a little bit here, okay? <laughs> 